It's another blessed occasion. We have been given this Lord's Day morning to gather, to assemble as we, as we have done. And we're so thankful for the richness of an hour such as this one. We have certainly enjoyed a time of study of the Word of God already this morning and now to reflect upon a period of worship. To do that in a way that we find described in the Word of God, it truly is a treasure and something to which we look forward so very dearly. At this point, certainly we're very thankful for some who have been ill that are able to be back with us. Others, certainly, who are dealing with grief in their life. We continue to pray that matters might be stronger and more comforted for you. Today, as we come to the lesson of the hour, you can already see what the title is on the wall behind me. We're going to cast a spotlight for the next few minutes upon that amazing event known as the Ascension of our Lord. As we do that, it really is a continuation of a series of lessons that has been a part of our study this year. In fact, one of our lessons each month, we made the decision back in January that we would focus and give consideration to a major event in the life of our Lord. And to this point, give some thought to the fact we studied the, His baptism, His birth, His transfiguration, His death, His burial, His resurrection, all of that you and I have considered, and with those ideas, it's been our goal and our desire to learn more about those particulars of the life of our Lord so that we could better appreciate them and use them to motivate us in greater ways of faithfulness. Today, you can already appreciate, we will give some thought to the ascension of our Lord. Isn't it an amazing thought to imagine what it was that those apostles saw? We shall develop that in some detail here in a few moments and then seek to draw some lessons from it that could be certainly of some benefit to us. On this next slide, why don't we certainly in fairness strive to simply appreciate the scene of the ascension. What is it that the text says? Now when you give thought to the ascension, certainly we are mindful of the greatness of that event for after all the Bible testifies to it on many particular occasions. So let's fill in a few of those matters and bring ourselves to this. You and I remember our blessed Savior, by wicked and cruel hands, was put to death on Thursday of that week of the Passover. As our Savior's life was taken from Him at 3 o'clock that afternoon, you and I remember He was buried. For after all, it was a high day, and so in the interest of moving things along, He was buried and certainly He arose on that Sunday morning. On that third day, in a great deal of appreciation of the very power of God, Romans 1 verse 4, he was proven to be the Son of God, and the empty tomb declared it. You may well notice then on that slide, in the character of that resurrection, you and I remember that there were many things then that followed it which continued to set before the human family the sheer greatness of who he was and what he had done. On that slide, I have invited you to note this. At the time of our Lord's resurrection on that Sunday, the Word of God testifies the things which you now notice. Would you notice with me the reading in Acts chapter 1? We'll begin with verse number 1 and appreciate in that something that took place over those next several days. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. So there's a reference to our ascension. After that he had through the Holy Ghost given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. 
to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If I pause at that point, you can already tell with me, Luke has shared with us some amazing facts. On the occasion of our Lord being taken up, you may remember that prior to that, He showed Himself alive by many infallible proofs. He demonstrated to them He was the Son of God who had in fact been resurrected. He illustrated to them the sheer grandeur of who He was and notice that lasted 40 days. Our Lord invested, as you can well tell, almost six weeks teaching them, instructing them, appearing to them, sharing with them the nature of that blessed gospel and helping them appreciate that which was to be their work in those coming days of their life. On that slide, I invited you to then notice about that 40-day period of time. Speaking about 40 days, you and I well remember so many other instances in the Word of God wherein a period of 40 days occupied such a memorable scene. Wasn't it true that the flood waters of Noah's day, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights? Genesis chapter 6 and also chapter 7. You and I remember that for 40 days there were other things such as that was a period of time our Savior fasted before the period of the temptations in Matthew 4. That same 40-day period so often appears in many other contexts. Here, of course, it has to do with that period of time after the resurrection but prior to the ascension. One last thing on that slide might then be this one. As the Lord demonstrated and witnessed these things by these proofs, isn't it fascinating to notice the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit was the one that was guiding some of the particulars of these particular events. Let's put some of those pieces together. You and I remember our Savior had died on Thursday afternoon. That again was just a couple of days. You and I recognize before the Sabbath, the final Sabbath of that week. But as you and I count the 40 days from the time of the resurrection, that would then mean that it was on Thursday when our Lord ascended. So the time came on that particular Thursday that the following events on this next slide thus take place for us. Jesus had these words to say. May I again turn your attention back to Acts chapter 1. I read through verse number 3 a moment ago. Let's take up the reading at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. We'll take these a little bit of the form of a verse at a time at this point. So you notice that Jesus was assembled with the apostles, as verse number 4 indicates. And at that time, he gave them an order. Don't you leave Jerusalem. You tarry, in verse number 4, for the promise of the Father. That is to say, a promise was going to be vouchsafed to them and given to them, and they needed to be in Jerusalem. At this point, I hope all of us are of a position to note this. Can't we agree God knows where you are no matter where you are, be you in Jerusalem or anywhere else? But there was something special something critical about remaining in Jerusalem. You and I know that it was the Old Testament who foretold about the nature of the developments that were going to take place in Jerusalem. 
And so, as that instruction was given, and as the prophets of old had foretold, those apostles needed to be reminded of the urgency of that location. Verse number 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Again, might you and I notice the promise that had just been mentioned, the promise of the Father, was now going to be manifested in the form of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the very wording that's used, baptized with the Holy Ghost. Those apostles, in just a very few verses hence, are going to thus find themselves overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be baptized in it, and they will deliver the majesty of that first gospel sermon and open the doors of the church as the church is established that glorious day. Next verse, verse number 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will that this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Aren't you somewhat amazed by the lack of the fullness of understanding of those apostles? They had been with the Lord for well over three years during His public ministry, witnessing His miracles, listening to His teaching, observing the various matters which He brought before them. Now He'd been crucified, resurrected, and in this particular consideration, they ask him this question, Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still under the impression it was going to be a physical kingdom. That there was going to be a literal reign here on this planet. You might remember earlier they were under the impression it was going to be a physical kingdom. You and I realized Jesus had already said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. They still didn't fully appreciate that. Verse number 7, And he, that's Jesus, said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The Lord, thus you'll notice, redirected their question. As far as the kingdom being restored to Israel, the Lord powerfully pointed out to them, it's not for you to fully appreciate all the particulars, but recognize this. You are going to be baptized by the Holy Ghost, verse 8, and you are going to be witnesses, beginning at Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the other most parts of the earth. Notice the Lord didn't say to them it was going to be a physical kingdom in the same way they were thinking. They were going to carry forward the beautiful message of the gospel of Christ. And I might point out that verse number 8 is in many ways the best outline to the whole book of Acts. Notice how the book develops that way. First of all, things center in Jerusalem. First seven chapters. Then you and I learn, sure enough, in that Judean area, the apostles preached and they taught, and the gospel, of course, had a great beginning there. But by the time we reach chapter 8, now we've gone into Samaria. Philip labors and preaches the message of the kingdom. And the Ethiopian eunuch, you may remember, under the teaching of Philip in that Samaritan area, is, is, is in fact brought to the gospel. When we arrive at chapter 13, the gospel goes to the othermost parts of the earth in the order that Acts 1 verse 8 had detailed. It's interesting as you and I then come to verse number 9. After this powerful set of instructions... After these amazing things the Lord had delivered, now look at verses 19 and 11. 
And when he had spoken these things, that he is the Lord, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What an amazing thing to have seen. In the midst of this presentation, while the Lord had just finished speaking to them, as they watch, He defies gravity, moves upward, right there, if you please, in their very sight. Verse number 9 describes it like this. Up as far as the clouds, they were still able to see Him. And then verse 10 highlights this truth. While they looked steadfastly, wouldn't you and I have been looking steadfastly? You don't see something like this. You and I would have no doubt looked as long as our eyes would have allowed us to, to envision Him, to see Him. And that verse says, Two men stood by them in white apparel. There appeared two others in these rather impressive white pieces of apparel. And these ask a question. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? I confess to you, I would have been guilty. I would have been looking up into heaven too. And these two ask this interesting set of questions. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you've seen shall, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And with that, the scene ends. Amazingly, the next verse quickly reminds us, Then returned they, that's the apostles, unto Jerusalem, just like they had been told to do, from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So, you and I now know the place from which our Lord ascended was the Mount of Olives. It was that very place that Jesus had not only visited more than once before, it had a very notable place, you and I remember, not very long before His actual crucifixion. As far as this Mount of Olives, why don't you and I turn the slide and then make some applications by pondering a bit about the significance of the ascension. What point was there to it that might be of great benefit to you and me? You and I know the fact of it. We appreciate that which took place. We understand that which occurred by virtue of it. What does it mean? How might it be a great element of encouraging the faithfulness of you and of me? May I offer just a very few thoughts? The first one will connect to the Holy Spirit. Could I take you back just a very few chapters into the book of John? You might recall that the very night before the Lord was crucified, notice He was still in the flesh at that point fully, and there were several comments that He made, one of which was this one. In John 16, verse number 7, it was at that time the Lord made this unforgettable statement. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. You notice that the Lord made reference to going away. Is that not another way of referring to the ascension? Jesus there said, if I don't go away, if I don't ascend, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit will not come. It's expedient, he would say, for me to go away in order for the Spirit to come. I hope you'll think about that with me in the following light. And I've developed a few thoughts with you there on, on the slide that, that is in fact before us. 
In John 16, verse 13, a little later in that very same chapter, Jesus pointed out that when He left, that the Spirit would guide them into all truth. Would you and I be impressed as to how needful the truth is? And we have it because the Spirit led them into the revelation of it and to the development of sending it forth to the entire world. And yet that was prompted in part by the departure of, of Jesus Himself. Jesus again said, If I go not away, the Spirit will not come. And yet, when the Lord left, those apostles were baptized by the Holy Ghost, just as Jesus promised them. And they, beginning at that Acts chapter 2 event, preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. They, in fact, blazed across the Roman Empire with the urgency and the truth of the gospel, leading men and women to come to know the offering of the Christ and how they could live in a way acceptable to Him. And so, as you notice furthermore, Jesus there said about the Spirit. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following, you and I remember then that this event that you and I call this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was not a happenstantial matter. It was not an accident. It had been foretold hundreds and hundreds of years previous. In fact, the last four verses of Joel chapter 2, Joel 2, verses 28 and following, remind us there that Joel the prophet, sometimes called the prophet of Pentecost, he stated forth rather powerfully the very thing Peter would quote verbatim in Acts 2, beginning in verse 17. And as he did, this coming of the Holy Spirit thus was exactly what the Old Testament prophets had foretold. That impressiveness and that significance reminds you to notice then that the very matters before us tell us about the greatness of the coming of the Christ and the greatness of His ascension and yet the greatness of the Holy Spirit's coming after He in fact had gone away. It may well be that this baptism of the Holy Spirit prompts many other thoughts and questions in our mind. Let me transition the slide. And as we develop some of them, maybe one of them is this. When our Lord ascended, just as they witnessed, what might be said about the fact of the matter of the Lord after He ascended? Could I invite you to note the reign, R-E-I-G-N, of Christ? Would you think with me about that reign, at least for the next moment or two? Calling to mind some of the statements that Peter had made in that second chapter of the book of Acts, you may notice with me verse number 34 in particular. Acts 2 verse 34 for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. By the development of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a rather amazing sermon, as you and I know in many ways. And included in it is that verse number 34, wherein Peter quotes from the Old Testament and challenges them to give thought to how to explain it. So you'll make my notice again in verse 34. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And in that verse, when it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Who's talking to who? No doubt many of the Jews presupposed he was talking to David. Was God saying something to David? Peter here asked, Well, how could that be? David's dead and buried. Long gone, he's been dead a thousand years by this point. And so Peter urges them to realize he was not talking about David. 
when he said the other reference to the word Lord in that text was one who would come in a great power and majesty. And that very verse said, Sit thou on my right hand. Who is blessed to sit at the right hand of God? When did Jesus the Christ? When our Savior ascended then on this occasion in Acts chapter 1, He was going to reign. After all, that's what sitting on the right hand of God means. It's a position of authority and a position of responsibility and a position of overruling sovereignty and providence. He ascended to reign. At this point, as you give thought to that particular slide, I've invited you to notice that reference in Psalm 24, verse number 9. Amazingly enough, David even foresaw the character of the ascension. Don't you find those words some of the most stirring words of all? You and I are quite familiar with Psalm 23. It is so often quoted and so often utilized and referenced. But maybe we aren't as familiar with Psalm 24. I think it's interesting to notice the trio of chapters. Psalm 22 foretold the crucifixion. That's the very chapter Jesus quoted while hanging on the cross. Psalm 23 speaks, it would seem to me, in many ways not so much about the ways you and I often use it. We use Psalm 23 at funerals. We use it when we go to the cemetery. It's quoted almost every time you go to a cemetery and somebody is placed back in the earth. But have you ever thought about this? Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. Psalm 24 is the ascension. What's between the two? Easy enough to appreciate. The grandeur of what would be the resurrection. It would seem to me that Psalm 23 would be a much better way to motivate you and me in faithfulness in light of the resurrection of the Lord. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23. Verses 4 to 6. But now back to Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Psalm 24, verses 9 and 10. Isn't it amazing then that there? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. The King of glory is coming home. Psalm 24 is a prophecy about the reality of the ascension. As you come near the bottom of that slide, it might well be this is the right time then to observe. The Word of God shares with you and me some more things about the marvelous character of that ascension. In fact, as you notice some of them, I'm going to invite you to think about this next slide where we can attach it to some of the things that we will in fact see shortly. In Daniel chapter number 7, we have a statement that really matches beautifully well with a statement you and I have just noted. Let me read the particular pair of verses in that chapter. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In the days of old, as you and I have just noted, David had already made some statements about the reality of the ascension. But listen to how direct Daniel was. I saw in the night visions, Daniel wrote, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. 
and came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So that passage I just read, did you notice a few of the particulars? It made mention of coming in the clouds. We've already noticed the Lord ascended into the clouds. But we also noticed He came to the ancient of days. That's God the Father. Even Daniel made an observation about some of the particulars connected to the ascension. And he did so, recognizing one final set of observations, and that's this. Notice what was given to him when he got there. A kingdom, dominion, power, majesty. And it said that it would never end. Isn't that an amazing thought then about the exquisiteness of a kingdom? Isn't it true? The kingdoms of men rise and they fall. It still is true that what men can build, men can destroy. But what God builds, no man can destroy. You'll notice even there, Daniel highlighted the truth then that that kingdom that the Lord would be given upon His coming back into heaven would be an everlasting kingdom. It would not be one that would come to ruination. And it would not, in fact, fall and become ruined. It might be, as you look at that slide that's before you, the Lord returned to the Father. He had come from heaven, He told us in John 17, verses 3 and 4, and now He returned back there. Look at a few of the additional points that you and I might note. Just as surely as He had left heaven, knowing fully well what would happen to Him here on earth, knowing that men would mistreat Him, that they would finally kill Him, and that they would rebel against Him and reject Him. And nonetheless, knowing that, He still in love came for each of us, that you and I might have the opportunity to be saved. On that slide that's before you, surely in John 16, 28, Jesus had already told the apostles, I'm going to leave this world. Now you and I already know, they didn't fully understand all of that at that time. But we are told later they did understand it. The ascension was an absolutely real event. It wasn't a, a hallucination. It's not that it could be claimed that these who saw it were simply seeing something that didn't really happen. The ascension was just as real as His birth, as His baptism, as His crucifixion or His resurrection. All of it actually happened. There are those in our world today who will rather straight-facedly say, this never happened. You can read articles where someone will rather matter-of-factly say, you know that never happened. But you and I know better than that. The Son of God walked on this planet just like the Word of God says He did. He was crucified just like the Word of God details. He was buried and He was resurrected just like the Word of God says. The tomb was empty. Not only that, He ascended. And when He ascended, He ascended to the Father, and He reigns over the kingdom that He was given at the time. The dominion that's His is such that doesn't it remind us about another statement the Master made. He said, All power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, 18. Luke would word it like this in Luke 24, 46. Reminded of all of us that that authority had you go and you preach to everybody everywhere. The beautiful character of power 
attached to these things allows us to close that slide like this. Think about some of the later New Testament characters. Do you suppose Stephen would say that the Lord's ascension was real? Do you suppose Paul would say it was real? You and I know the answers to those two questions. You may remember when they were stoning Stephen to death, who did Stephen see and talk to? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Acts 7, 59. And what about Paul on the road to Damascus? You might recall when the bright light shone around him, who did he talk to? Who was it that had conversation with him? He saw the ascended Lord. And Peter, I'm sorry, Paul gave the rest of his days in defense of that truth and that reality. It was no hallucination. It wasn't merely that it was some other event. As far as the character closing that slide, doesn't that bring us to a fourth observation? Again, we ask, what about the ascension? What meaning might you and I appreciate in it as far as application for us? May I offer this? That kingdom over which the Master reigns, the church, the wonderful kingdom of God. May I ask you to note this with me? Is there work that our Lord continues to do, though He is now ascended? Absolutely. I've selected several of them. And I'm sure you'd be able to at least add some additional ones, but I think the major categories might well be included. But let's step through these one by one. First of all, the ascension was a necessary and vital part of the gospel message. Those early saints, as they preached the wonders of the gospel, this is among that which they preached. I say that because of the wording of 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. That was the lesson text that Brother Wayne read in our hearing just a moment ago. May I invite you to consider again what Paul wrote on that occasion. And without controversy. May we emphasize that statement. This can't be argued against. This is an absolute fact without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. While our Savior was here on the planet, He was God incarnate. He was not some angel. He was not some other dignified being. He was God in the flesh. In fact, His name suggests that God with us, Matthew 1.23. But then it says this, justified in the Spirit. When the Spirit at the Lord's baptism came on Him, you may recall that when that was seen, appearing in the form of a dove, you and I remember in John chapter 3, it there powerfully reminds us the Lord did not receive the Spirit by measure. He had the fullness of it, the absolute character of all that was involved in it. But not only that, it says seen of angels. Oh, how often was our Lord seen of angels. After all, they knew Him and He knew them. Seen of angels, and it goes on to say, preached unto the Gentiles. That's the very kind of message that Jesus Himself had given to them. They were to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Then it says this, believed on in the world. Wasn't it wonderful that so many recognized the nature of that and believed it? Isn't it true on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000 precious souls believed that day and many, many more as the later chapters of the book of Acts would tell us. But that leaves only one final expression of that verse. Received up into glory. That's the ascension. 
May I point out then the ascension is every bit as uncontroversial as the preaching, as the belief, as the characteristics of His coming, all the other features of that verse. And so the ascension is critical. And oh, how vital it is. And so that next point on the slide. Think about what the Lord does for you and for me today. 1 Timothy 2, verse number 5. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He serves today as your mediator and mine. The one that is the go-between between us and God. The one who carries our petitions and our nature based on His blood before the Father. How critical is our need for a mediator? Without one, you and I are hopeless. You and I are not perfect like God, and we do not think on His level, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. In our faults and failures, we need someone who can serve as a mediator, carrying our cause and our rightness to the degree on His blood that you and I could then appreciate the God, God's blessing in our direction. In addition to His role as mediator, he serves as our high priest. We know that because of Hebrews 7.25 and Hebrews 8 verse 1. You and I remember what a role the high priest served in the days of the Old Testament. Now admittedly that was a man. But it was a man who in fact served as that priestly function between the people and God. He could officiate over the features characteristic of their offerings and bring their matters before the God of heaven. Jesus Christ is our high priest. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. We have a high priest, and how desperately we need it. Surely it's fair to say that he's the one who, by his presentation and his official capacity as high priest, is able to bring our offerings unto the God of heaven. I hope we're all thankful for His role as our high priest. Not only that, the New Testament also shares with us that Jesus serves as our advocate. Would you note with me the reading of 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1? Early in that chapter, the inspired apostle John pointed out this rather interesting truth. My little children, he wrote, These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John rather directly pointed out then that he also serves as our advocate. That's a rather powerful word. The original word carries a sense that relates to a bit of a law circumstance, or at least a law kind of uh, situation. You and I are quite aware, are quite aware of how many law cases proceed there's a particular person on trial there's a prosecuting attorney there's a defense attorney you and I know often how that works the prosecuting attorney alleges things and makes accusations the defense attorney acts on behalf of the accused in the interest of fairness hopefully in an effort to bring forth the truth so that if that person is in fact not guilty that he or she won't be declared guilty you and I have an advocate with the Father. A being who perfectly identifies with us because He lived here among us on earth. But He also identifies with God because He is God. 
And He can thus serve as our advocate, petitioning God on your behalf and mine on those moments wherein we need that advocacy. For after all, you and I know there's no man that sinneth not, 1 Kings 7, 20, verse 46. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This verse again says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. To that person who's washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus can say, Dear Father, He was washed in my blood. He was baptized for the mission of His sins. He made a mistake. But He repented of it. His heart's right. Don't hold it against Him. And God won't hold it against you and me. We've got an advocate, someone petitioning on our behalf to God. I find that an amazing thought. God loves you and me, and the Master specifically in the form does that by His advocacy. Obviously that means that you and I have got to be in Him. He won't advocate for those He doesn't know. Does He know you and me? Are you and I living faithful to Him? Is it such that we, in fact, have availed of the power in His blood? As you close that particular verse, I've saved this one to last. He makes intercession for us. Not only was that asserted in Romans 8.34, it's also highlighted in that verse I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 7.25. He intercedes on our behalf. Paul, in fact, develops that at length in that 8th chapter of the Roman letter. And as he does, that certainly includes many great truths. But you and I have a mediator, an intercessor, an advocate. We have a high priest, and Jesus Christ functions in all these roles, and he does it perfectly. We never have to worry about him falling down on the job. We never have to worry about him somehow failing to carry out that which needs to be done. Sometimes here upon earth, that does happen, doesn't it? that lawyer to which I referred, he might, in fact, be a rather ungodly sort of fellow. He might not actually carry out the case that's right. And not only that, the person who otherwise ought to mediate for you and me may not have our best interest at heart, but that's never true of Christ. He always does what's right. We read that in Mark seven thirty-seven, And we also highlight and appreciate then that His role in all these things is absolutely perfect. Let's draw our lesson to a conclusion. We have given interest in the ascension of our Lord. What an amazing event. I'm sure you and I in our imagination can try to visualize what that must have looked like. But you and I have not only revisited the actual scene of the ascension, but we've also looked at some of the consequences and implications of it. And among them have been, since the Lord was ascended, the Spirit did come and guided those apostles into all truth. And the later New Testament came to be a reality as a result of that effort. Not only that, you and I saw the present reign, R-E-I-G-N, of Jesus over His kingdom, the church. He was given a kingdom, just as Daniel foretold. And that kingdom, he said, would never be destroyed. Thirdly, we highlighted the amazing character of the Lord's return to the Father and what that indicated and what it meant. And finally, the Lord's continuing work today in the place of His ascension. He's currently in heaven, and He is thus carrying out His mediatorial works, His intercessory works, 
His priestly functions as high priest, all of that ideally and perfectly. What He demands of you and me is faithfulness on our part to Him. Today, as you and I analyze ourselves, as I asked earlier, if there's someone in this assembly who isn't a faithful member of the Lord's body, don't you want a person, a being like this, acting on your behalf? He was ascended to the Father. This very day, if you would wish then to become a member of the body of Christ, all you must do is do what He said. It's not what any person on earth would say. It's not what any counsel of men may assert. He said in John 8, 24, Except you believe I am He, you shall die in your sins. You must believe in Him, absolutely, without controversy or doubt. But that belief alone isn't enough to say. For you also remember in John 12, verses 41 and following, there there were many that believed, but they were not pleasing to God because that belief wasn't anchored in that which belief ought to produce, repentance of sins. Nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, to borrow the words of Luke 13, 5. But that repentance then brings us to confession. The verbal presentation of what's in one's heart, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the very thing, of course, we see mentioned in Matthew 16, 18. And then baptism for the remission of sins. That's where we actually contact His blood, and His blood washes our sins away, Acts twenty two sixteen, And in so doing, we rise a new creature in Christ, ready to live faithful to Him. However, maybe you knew that kind of life but aren't faithful today. The Lord also would invite you to come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. And in so doing, if you will repent of those sins and confess them, 1 John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, that He'll forgive them. Today, if we could be of some help in any way, Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement, and we encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.